have a long teaching today, so I'm gonna ask you to do your best to lean in, and we have no keynote, so your attention span will be tested, but the Lord is faithful. And another thing that's faithful is note-taking, and so I'd really encourage you to take notes. I cannot promise a super coherent teaching at times, and so here's what I'd say. Don't lean on me, lean on the Lord. And I mean, I know it's like sounds nice and like sexy to say that. Don't lean on me, lean on God. And, but, but, that's, but do do that. Um, and oh, I said do do. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm so silly for that. Um, gosh, focus. Anyway. I'd just say, write down something you don't want to forget, right? Like, you can write notes on the whole teaching if you want. If that helps you, then do it. But I'd just say, if, if a key sentence or a key phrase or a moment that just, like, really stirs your heart, write that down and plan to put that somewhere where you're going to see it. Because there's a thing that happens when we leave this space and walk to the parking lot. Our brains go back into habit mode doing the same old, same old. And the threat is to forget everything that happened in this space. So write down what you want to remember. Put it on the dash of your car. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it somewhere where you can revisit and meditate on it because I believe that God, man, this stuff is so, so rich. All right, so we have a seven-week series starting today. It's gonna take us to the end of our prayer and fasting season. And it's gonna be in James chapter four, verses one through 10. Anyone that just loves the series title, here's the series title, Draw Near. That's the series title. Hey, Luke, I think my water's back there. If it's not, can you get me a cup of water? I'm, I, can, I can just discern that I'm parched. <laughs> just to keep it real spiritual. <laughs> Thank you so much. Look at this mega bottle. This is the new Stanley, FYI. You're gonna start seeing these everywhere. Anybody already seen this everywhere? Yeah. Oh, it's a straw. Mm. All right. All right. That was the last ADD moment. Here we go. There is this beautiful and epic verse in James 4. And if you've been a part of church tradition or around Christian people long enough, you've probably heard it. But if you haven't, this is pretty epic. There's a promise James make. James makes. Draw near to God. Who can finish it? Yeah. What an amazing promise. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Let that marinate, because there's a lot of hope in that. <laughs> like, is anybody in on that promise? If I draw near to God, Scripture, He will draw near to me. Hold on to that promise today. As I've explored that deeper, before and after that verse in James 4, there are these invitations, commands, and questions being asked. And all of them really lead you to purify your heart, to purify your mind, in order to draw near to God, that he may draw near to you. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's stealing this idea from Jesus himself, which is the perfect person to steal from. Jesus has a lot of good things. Last week, we mentioned this. He says, 
whatever causes you to stumble. You know, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. He's not saying gouge your physical eye out. He's saying anything that is hindering you on your walk toward me, get rid of it. I'm trying to offer you life. Don't let anything stand in the way of me and you. James is doing something very similar in James 4, 1 through 10. He's saying, rid yourself of anything that would hinder or slow you down from drawing near to God. And if you don't do that, you may not be able to draw near to God. And when we're in the Christian and the spiritual context, that's like, oh, well, I thought grace was free and legalism, blah, 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 blah. But if I told you, hey, in your relationship, in your dating life or in your marital life, be close with the person you're pursuing, you'd be like, of course. If I said, okay, well then stop texting and DMing girls. Stop watching porn. Stop idolizing sports. Stop being distracted. Start praying. For, you'd be like, yeah, obviously. It makes sense to me that the things you told me to stop doing are gonna encourage me to pursue the person that I'm pursuing with a whole heart. It's the same conversation here with the Lord. Like, hey, if you really wanna pursue the Lord, I mean, seriously, let's just be adults. Like, remove the things that are hindering you from pursuing King Jesus with a pure and whole heart. So that's gonna be our series in James. There are some prerequisites for this series to take a hold of your heart and help your intimacy with King Jesus, to help you draw near and experience his nearness. I need you to take a deep breath, and I need you to just receive what I'm about to say. We have to lay down our defenses all the way. Whether those defenses are built up by pride or ego or selfishness or shame or fear or guilt, anxiousness, there's a lot of things that stir within us that prevent us from listening to the Lord. It has to be laid down. We have to allow our God to search our hearts and reveal whatever needs to be revealed. What does Revelations 3 say? He disciplines who he loves. And some of you, he's not even gonna discipline, he's gonna just pour out love on your heart. But regardless, whatever God wants to bring to the surface in your heart, it is a God who loves you and wants to bring life to you. I thought about calling this series a divine detox because do you know how much a detox stinks? Has anyone ever detoxed? Has anyone ever tried to diet and 16 hours in, you already have a headache and you're like, I cannot, I cannot. Whole 30 just turned into a whole half day, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Because here's a true thing. When you've got toxins in you, and you begin to detox, two truths. You are on the way toward healing more than, you, more than you were before you started feeling the symptoms. You are on your way toward healing. Second truth, it hurts. You get nausea, you get fatigue, you get headaches. It's a bummer all the way. 
And if you don't know that you're on your way toward healing, you will press abort. Like, eject, we are done. I do not like this, right? This is a similar conversation. There's gonna be some things that God's gonna bring to the surface of your heart, and there's gonna, you need to know this. Your impulse is gonna say, I don't wanna touch that. I wanna talk about that. I've been ignoring that as a profession for quite a while, and I plan on ignoring that further. God wants to heal. Do not forget the promise. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That promise will be crucial every single week as we talk about some admittedly hard things around purifying our hearts. And if at any point you feel judged or shamed, I'm going first. I volunteer to let you understand no one's better at sinning than me. I'm like the LeBron James of falling short. There's humor in that, but I'm not even kidding. I surprise myself often. So let's not let our insecurity or our shame or our ego or our pride interfere here. Okay, that was a much longer preface, so this teaching got longer. <laughs> um, don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. Focus on your heart. Okay. Today we're reading James 4, 1 through 2. I'm pumped. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Today, I'm going to cover three talking points. The question, the answer, the result. All right, so if you're taking notes, question, answer, result, that's it. Here's the question. What's causing quarrels and fights among you? If you want to simplify it, what's causing conflict? As I thought about it personally, I thought what's causing internal or external conflict, but if you wanna stay really true to the text, what's causing quarrels and fights exterior among you in your relationships? This question is really important to not answer quickly. Even just a few chapters earlier, James says, be quick to hear, be slow to speak and slow to anger. Don't underestimate how quick you can be to speak and get mad when someone asks a question that's, that might potentially expose your heart. James is asking a question that make no mistake, the listeners, when this letter would have been read out loud, some of them would have been tempted to be very quick to answer. I know, I know what's causing fights and quarrels that idiot over there, right? That would have been the impulse here to question like this. It reminds me of like when you're in uh, elementary school, maybe it's with your sibling growing up or whatever authority figure at school walks up and there's been a fight, as can happen amongst third graders. What happened? What's going on? I don't know about you when you were eight, but for me, I didn't go, gosh, 
just a great question, teacher. <laughs> Where am I at fault? Where is my ego and pride going unchecked? It was me. It was me, teacher, right? Like when you're young, and when you're old, when you're young, what's your impulse? Oh, I can tell you exactly what happened. She, he did this, 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 and this, and it's all their fault, right? Anybody else? Like that childlike instinct to immediately finger point before even thinking or processing, just point the finger, blame someone else. The only difference between being a child and being an adult is we're much more savvy and eloquent and in-depth. We have more words at our expense to make beautiful our finger pointing, to make reasonable. Another word would be manipulative. We know how to talk away. Some of you in your marriages, you're professionals at this. You're like me. You know how to turn a conversation and neglect the truth all the while. At times, you even convince your spouse that they were in fact wrong. And the whole while, if you listen to your heart, you know that's not actually true. You just know how to talk your way out of it, right? It's that ego, it's that defensiveness, it's that fear, it's that shame, it's whatever it is. But James would urge with your friendships, with your roommates, with your coworkers, with your spouse, be slow to speak, quick to listen. What is causing this undesired conflict in your life? Here's the key question that I, I'd actually love for you to write this one down. In my head, it hits hard, but if it doesn't, pretend. No, don't, be truthful. Do you long to be right or righteous? And be quick to speak. Or be, no, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. Be slow to answer externally or internally. Do you long to be right or righteous? Because spoiler alert, if you long to be righteous, you're gonna be wrong a whole lot on the way. If you wanna be like Christ, get comfortable from time to time not being like Christ and Christ helping you see that. The biblical word for that, sanctification. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Oh, sanctified, set apart, becoming more like Christ, being made into the image of God. Oh, you know what that feels like? Often being convicted of wrongdoing. Or you taking things out of the hands of God and into your own hands. Proverbs 12.1 be ready to eat one right here. Eat this. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. That's, a trans that's the translation. <laughs> I didn't insert my own word there. I'm not hurling insults at you. The, the Bible is. I looked into reproof because I've always translated that as correction, and certainly that's a part of the definition. But another word, blame. Reproof means blame. He who hates blame is stupid. Does anyone else hate blame? You know what's terrible when you're in a fight with someone? When you get blamed. 
And Proverbs 12 says, you are neglecting the road to righteousness when you despise being appropriately blamed for an issue. Don't be the fool. Don't be the stupid one in the room. Refuse to fight the battle of being right for the sake of being right. That's marriage 101 right there. Husbands, wives, lose a fight or two. That's great advice. Willingly lose. Lose with Jesus. That phrase changed my marriage when someone said, you need to learn how to lose with Jesus. How often do you watch Jesus lose in the gospel? He's righteous. With the Lord in your marriages, with your classmates, with your roommates, with your coworkers, do not fight the battle of being correct. Fight the battle of being righteous, of being like Jesus. But oftentimes there's conflict within us on this endeavor and James is gonna take us there. He's gonna refuse to let us stay shallow in this conversation. He's not just gonna leave us with the question, he's gonna give us an answer. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He says, is it not, this is number two, is it not this? There are passions at war within you. Whoa, what? There is a war inside of you. He who has ears, let him hear. Passions could be translated pleasures. Pleasures, satisfied desires, okay? That's passions, pleasures, satisfied desires. James is highlighting a constant state of desiring and meeting desire. Your logical conclusion that when you want something, you get it without any filter. Any fleeting desire that pops up, you more often than not satisfy that desire. No prayer, no thoughtfulness, no discernment. It's just kind of your habit. I could just be preaching to a mirror. And he is saying, if you're not careful, you'll have so many desires that demand be met. You will have a war within you. A life controlled, I'm gonna start looking at my notes a lot more now because I, I wanna make sure I, you know. A life controlled by every fleeting desire is a life of chaos that cannot be tamed. It is the opposite of a peace that, trans that transcends understanding. It is the opposite of contentment. I referenced 1 Timothy 6, 6 last week. Let me read it. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Take this from a practitioner like Paul, who learned by losing a lot that Christ's food and clothing was enough. And I kid you not, if your list is longer than that, there may be a conversation between you and the Lord that needs to be had. Kid you not. Tough to stomach. 
but Christ promises abundant life, so we gotta trust this thing, okay? Okay, so important to understand the world we walk in, specifically America, more specifically Nashville, it is a world of pleasure. You just need to know this. You probably already know it on some level, but we're gonna take it deeper. And I'm not about to list sins. No shame. Continue to war against shame that will prevent healing and growth. When we are hungry, we do not just eat. We often eat exactly what we want and too much of it. When we are thirsty, we don't just go for water. We often go for exactly what our appetite is asking for. When there are clothes we wanna wear, often we willingly go into debt or spend unnecessarily to wear those clothes. When there is a drug or drink we desire, we consume it regardless of spiritual, moral, or social consequence. We Postmates, we Amazon, we Amazon, we stream, we purchase. I'm not calling this sin outright. I'm trying to just help you understand that we have normalized satisfying our desires without ever checking with God himself. I had a friend tell me that he would pray every time he went grocery shopping. And to this day, I'm still like, eh. Oh no, man, chill out. <laughs> just get your noodles, you know, get your frozen dinner. It's okay. This friend has at every turn been more mature and wise than me. And I'm starting to understand that he was combating a spirit of, because I want it, I get it. End of conversation. This ideology of thoughtless impulsivity to satisfy craving. This conversation matters because while we think we are living in freedom, we might actually be creating more and more masters within us that demand we obey their every order and command. The master of food, the master of drink, the master of shopping, the master of phones, the master of drugs, that demands you need this and you must get it. These masters turn wants into needs. They are not needs but we begin living and behaving as if they are, thinking as if they are, thus feeling incomplete when we do not have it. There's a book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer, and I'm about to read for like two minutes from this book, but it's potent. We confuse the pursuit of pleasure with freedom. To pursue and enjoy and buy and sell and sleep with and do and say whatever we desire, of course, as long as it doesn't harm anybody. Sure. That has become the dominant view of freedom in the West. But that is not Paul's view of freedom or Jesus's or most luminaries of the human condition prior to the modern era. They put more emphasis on positive freedom. Freedom not just to choose, but to choose the good. For them, freedom isn't about autonomy from authority, but about liberating loving relationships from sin. And positive freedom means we need a kind of power from outside of ourselves, think higher power from the Alcoholics Anonymous, to overcome our strong desires for self-gratification and to fulfill our deep desires for self-giving love. 
For the scripture writers, anything that has control over you, be an autocratic tyrant, a slave owner, a self-defeating behavior, or an addiction to drugs or alcohol, or even your phone is your master. Andrew Sullivan said this in a piece for New York Magazine. For most of the ancients, freedom was freedom from our natural desires and material needs. It rested on a mastery of these deep natural urges in favor of self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Restraint and education into virtue. They would look at our freedom and see chaos and slavery to desire. And they would predict misery and not happiness as the result. Resonating? Gerald May, spiritual director, psychiatrist, says, regardless of how a compulsion appears externally, underneath, it is always robbing us of our freedom. We act not because we've chosen to, but because we have to. We cling to things and to people and beliefs and behaviors, not because we love them, because we're terrified of losing them. We want freedom, but in a cruel twist of irony, in our pursuit of living freely, we are held captive. This is me talking now, sorry. We want freedom, but in a cruel twist of irony, in our pursuit of living freely, we are actually held captive. And this is a life controlled by passions, pleasures, satisfied desires. Commercial break, fear not. Jesus will ultimately satisfy every desire in your heart. Promise. Divine detox. Luke 8, 14. Jesus gives the parable of the four soils. The gospel is like seed that takes root in your heart. He says this, there is one seed that fell among the thorns. They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, same word, and their fruit does not mature. When Jesus himself addresses your heart and your ability to hear the gospel and come alive in the gospel, the threat that will choke you out is a life consumed by pleasure. So even in those moments where I go to Patagonia because there's a specific long sleeve shirt that Leah says I look sexy in, and so I want all of them in every color. <laughs> True or false? <laughs> Come up here and tell me I look sexy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but even when I go to buy clothes, man, look, y'all, real talk. I need to be slow that I have clarity on the motivating factors to my shopping. I am not trying to send us into this reality of exhausting and taxing mental assessment every time you make a decision. Don't jump there. You're a child of God, loved and free. I'm not, don't jump there. Don't let that threatening thought close off your heart. I'm asking, I'm encouraging us to... God, will you reveal the desires and the motivations within me? And Jesus, anything that you want to reveal, you are allowed to reveal. 
If there is addiction or idolatry or insecurity or shame or fear that is building this compulsive, eager, starving voice in me that that is turning once into knees, Jesus, please show me. I don't want to live that way the rest of my life. If there is true contentment in Christ, I want that. Let him speak. Let him reveal. Because there's a potential that there are masters in us giving us commands often with threats on our life that are actually in control as we live in this illusion of freedom that Jesus wants to confront and heal and restore. This is what chaos can be. Wants that pretend to be needs that constantly circulate in our hearts and minds. And we live in such a intensely wealthy culture. Some of you are like, not me, probably you. You keep comparing yourself to six-figure salaries, but probably you, all of us. And we can afford to do this. We can afford to satisfy our desires on some level. Our phones and our billboards are desire-creating machines. It ain't easy out here, y'all. To some, we are simply avenues to money, to profit. And they know our brains. They know our personalities. They got our algorithm so dialed in. Whose algorithm is so dialed in? Come on. Does anyone's advertisement be like, hey, man, hey, 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 whoa, that was a little close to home because I definitely want that right now. And I, I need that thing. That, you know, like, that. how'd you do that? <laughs> Just trying to watch some TikToks. That's all I was trying to do. But I'm going to buy that. I don't know. I was going to say, what, what example? I was going to say massage gun, but I don't, that's not me. I don't know. Does anyone like massage guns? Anyway, all right. Don't assume there's not a war on you. So we had a question. We've got an answer. Now, here's the result. If we're the people that are constantly satisfying every fleeting desire, there's this war within us, Okay. What's the consequence of a life that either meets every fleeting desire or at least longs to meet every fleeting desire? You bear the fruit of external harm. This is just what happens. You begin to lose sight of how Jesus sees and treats others, which may sound odd, but this is what happens. James says, you desire and you do not have so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. An interesting result, right? What do you mean? This is just like about me, right? No, it ends up impacting others. That word murder, probably better translated hate, 1 John 3, 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. I don't think the church he's addressing is like everyone's murdering everyone because they want stuff but hate is produced, unnecessary anger is produced. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. So a real thing happens when we have these desires within within us, some being met, some being neglected. It causes a chaos in us that leads us to live and act chaotically. We will find ourselves impatient, hateful, judgmental, critical, blaming, 
being narcissistic, egotistical, and prideful. Understand this. We lose the ability to see others correctly because we cannot see within ourselves correctly. We lose our ability to see our neighbors for who they are, our spouses, our kids, our friends, our enemies. And you begin viewing others through the lens of yourself for your sake because that's the pattern within you. I want that for my sake, my story. And it builds this self-indulgent, self-focused life. Now I'm speaking to extremes. There's of course nuance. If you're like me, you have some parts of you that you're proud of and parts of you like, man, that needs some work. So, but forgive me as I speak in extremes, but listen, this is the main character syndrome. And this sneaky result, it leads to selfishly walking in relationships. And when you selfishly walk in relationships, it inevitably leads to unnecessary conflict. Someone say, amen. Anyone walked in a relationship with selfish intentions? Did it lead to conflict? When you see someone who has more money than you or less money than you, when someone has the body you want or the body you don't want, the career you want, because of your internal framework, you are prone to hating or coveting. And I wanna speak to coveting because we often use this word comparison. Now, for some, that's an innocent word, but for some, I think it's a little manipulative and just, I love you, be sweet, it's all good. I'm not saying coveting and comparing are the same, but they're definitely at the family reunion together. And both have an identity and contentment in Christ issue that needs to be brought to the light and healed. Both neglect, whether you covet or you compare and it makes you insecure, both neglect that Christ is enough and has full authority and full say on who you are as a son of God or daughter of God. More on that in a little bit. Coveting in comparison is often, you have something I want and it makes me feel a type of way. Okay, anyone resonate with that feeling? You look at someone, you're like, I like that and I don't like that you have it. I don't like how it makes me feel. The master within me says, I have to have it, but I don't have it and you have it. And I feel a type of way about that. And a lot of thoughts happen when I simply notice that. The 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Because what does a coveting spirit lead to? I'm gonna take that for myself. You got the promotion, I will pray on your downfall and I will get that promotion. You have that wealth, you have that maturity, you have that discipline, it makes me feel insecure or I'll live unhealthily until I acquire it, or I'll pray you lose it, or I'll judge you to self-soothe. A nasty consequence of not being content, and it produces insecurity. I see so much insecurity in the church. How often do you talk to someone and you just speak about your insecurities or you hear them share about their insecurities. Insecurity hurts. No one likes it. It does not feel good to be lesser than. I can be insecure, especially when I think I've disappointed someone. That will drive me up a wall in an OCD-like fashion. So I don't, I'm not speaking down when I say this. But men and women both are walking in insecurity. Guys, I, point blank. Christ 
does not want an insecure church. And his future destiny for you in no way involves an insecure daughter of God or an insecure son of God. I fear that we dwell on our insecurities so much that we neglect the fact that Jesus might be calling us to a place of deep confidence. And I don't know what you need to write and put on your mirror or what you need to add to your daily prayer regimen, but Jesus is not content with an insecure bride. I don't know how you picture yourself when you turn 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, but whatever insecurities you have now, begin praying in the next 10 years, I want that to be replaced with deep confidence that you are enough and that my identity is only in you. No matter my circumstance or their circumstance, please hear me. No matter what I have or what they have, no matter what I look like or what they look like, no matter what my personality is or their personality, no matter where I'm at in my health journey or where they're at in their health journey, I will be confident in Christ. The church has an insecurity problem. If any part of you really believes that Jesus' call on your life is to look at him and then feel insecure about your lack, you have missed the gospel. And if that makes you insecure, stop, stop. The enemy is so crafty. He'll take the gospel and make you insecure. He'll take the perfection and righteousness of Christ that he longs to lavish on you, the confidence he wants to instill in you, child of God, and the enemy will take that story and make you feel weak and lesser than. You are complete in Christ. There's moments in the gospel where Jesus is like, here's the recipe to having faith, have it. And you're like, what? How does that work? Guys, I'm telling you, in areas of insecurity, give yourself a season of just having confidence. What do you mean? I don't, dude, have it. Have it. I'm serious. Look in the mirror every morning. Look your own self in the eyes. You're gonna feel like a lunatic. Look yourself in the eyes. That is a son or a daughter of Christ. I need nothing else. And as fleeting desires and insecurities and shame and regret and remorse and all this stuff pops up throughout the day, I got to go find a mirror and repeat for myself what scripture says about anyone that has called Christ Lord. Christ is enough. And your future destiny is a confidence in Christ that does not hinge on any circumstance. It does not hinge on what your friends think, what your coworkers think, what your social status is. If we want to be a Matthew 5:14 city set on a hill, light in the dark, if we want to be distinguished as the bride of Christ, we have got to live as confident sons and daughters. 
Nothing in and around our lives allowed to come in. Nothing, no one has permission to make us insecure. Now I'm speaking about a long-term healing journey. Don't get me wrong. So if you wake up tomorrow feeling insecure, so did I. But some of us have made our beds with our insecurities, have made our beds with our wounds, our shames, our fears. May Jesus have genuine, full access on the deepest parts within us. May we give Jesus permission, heal this. In the name of Jesus, this insecurity, this battle I'm fighting, this wound is temporary, not permanent. I've got family members that got so comfortable with their wounds And it's sad, I'm not like judging them, my heart breaks, that they just spent decades in their wounding. And I really believe with the right amount of scripture and prayer and healthy community that prayed for each other, that encouraged each other, that gave each other confidence, that did not have to be so. I believe that's the lie of insecurity. And what's even more heartbreaking or equally heartbreaking is that insecurity produces jealousy and judgment, and hate, and coveting. Our lust for the pleasures of life, it's so sneaky, the fruit of that, and what all it produces. Spouses, your spouse will display a grace and a patience and a maturity and a discipline that you've been hungry for but neglecting. And instead of going, thank God I have a spouse that's helping me grow mature, out of your own insecurity, you will speak harshly against them in the midst of their growing because it's revealed your own insecurity. You covet the maturity and depth they're displaying to you, and it makes you feel lesser than, and so you speak harshly against their growth. This will happen. Friends that have tons of money, You'll feel these thoughts. I wish they'd give me some. I felt it. They could afford to give me some and then give me some again and then give me some again. And they've never even offered once. (laughs) You'll see your friend get that job. They're not even good at that job. How are they in that spot and I'm in this spot? That is a discontentment in Christ. That EP wasn't even good, dude. That's not even art. Just feeding the machine over there. Congrats. You got the Spotify streams, but you don't have the art. I don't know. How do artists think? (laughs) Kidding. I am one. I know. Uh, Have you heard my rap? Anyway. And what will happen when your heart is doing this is your friendships and your relationships will begin to lack depth. You're getting so good at buying into a social hierarchy for whatever reasons. The equality of heaven is non-existent in your heart. You're so aware of who's better than who, and it will lead you to distance in your relationships, at best, fighting at worst. So some important questions if you want to get to the heart of it. Who are you jealous of? Who's making you insecure? Why? And be slow to answer that question. Who do you judge or gossip about? Who are you condescending toward? 
Who in your social, so, social, who in your social circle are you consistently being sarcastic with and not encouraging? In the name of joking, you're always cutting them down. I had to learn this lesson. Sarcastic, it's just sneakily a bad pattern. What needs to happen with you and your walk with Jesus to begin maturing and healing? Somehow, someway, Jesus could not be insulted. Lord knows he got so many insults hurled his way. It did not shake him, y'all. No one went lower than Jesus. Mocked, ridiculed, he did not finger point. He did not lash out. He knew who he was and why he was there. And he actually prayed, Father, forgive him. He didn't just not lash out, he forgave him. They did not apologize. Like, I've gotten so good at diluting the call of Jesus on my life, that's the call. When the whole world makes you feel lesser than, you love them because you know who you are as a son or daughter. When the whole world keeps hurling overt or subtle insults at your character, at your life circumstance, at your status, at your body shape, whatever it is, you love them. Why? You know who you are in Christ. You know who he's called you to be. About to wrap up. Yeah, it's 1020. told you. I surprised myself with how long I've been talking, though. We're okay. Almost done. A daily practice. Our confidence in Jesus grows with confession, humility, and healing. Here's a piece of daily prayer. If you want to begin healing from the inside out, God, search my heart. You have permission. Where am I anxious, mad, jealous, worried, angry, or sad? And talk it out to the fullest extent. Do not hold back. Tell him exactly what you think or feel. Don't filter it. It's already alive in you. Bring it out. And once you've said it all, sit quietly and ask him to tell you the truth. Psalm 25 says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. If anyone else is tired of their own path, pray that psalm. I've had enough of me. I'm very aware of what I'm thinking and feeling. Jesus, I'd love to know what you're thinking and feeling about this one. You have permission to correct me. You have permission to blame me, for I will not be stupid. This might be the starting point of healing the war that wages within you. Go read Psalm 25. It's, it is on fire. All right. I skipped past most of that point because I, I really didn't. So we're going to go to communion. And communion is going to be individual, and we'll do it for like five minutes. But I'm going to invite you into three prayer prompts with God. They, they all work together. They're not like super separate. The first thing I want you to do during our time of prayer and processing, you have to acknowledge a deep truth. God loves you and longs to draw near. That's his heart for you. 
1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. When you approach the throne, you're approaching a father. Matthew 6, Jesus says, pray like this, our father. So before you move in to searching my heart, you must identify the terms of the relationship. He is your father, you are his daughter, you are his son, and he loves you. If we're not working from that foundation, unnecessarily gruesome. You're his kid. Revelations 3, he disciplines the ones he loves. Like, he loves you. Next, ask this question. Are there any unchecked passions within me? Are there any unchecked passions at war within me? And please help me see them. Like, just help me see them. I want to see them. I don't want to, but I want to. Last one. God, have my passions caused any hurt between you and me or someone in my life? And please show me. If there are passions within me that in hindsight, when I used to finger point, I actually understand that there was some stuff going on in me that led me to lash out, that led me to treat that way, whether subtly or over the top, will you show me I'll make it right. I'm going to give you five minutes, maybe seven. Just talk to the Lord. He's here. He will draw near to a heart that prays these prayers. One moment. (laughs) Siri is trying to... (laughs) Seriously? (laughs) All right. Acknowledge that God loves you and longs to draw near. Ask if there are any unchecked passions that were within you, and then ask God, have my passions caused any hurt between you and God or someone in your life?